Good morning. I'm be, being reading. I'll be reading Romans, Book of Romans, chapter eight, verses eighteen to thirty-nine. These might be a, a good thing to meditate on when you go home. There's some great verses, very familiar but powerful words. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of, the, of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who does not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, Linda. 
Uh, welcome. It's great to be with you today. I want to say a special welcome uh, to those who are visiting with us this morning. My name is Jonathan. It's my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here at Windsor District Baptist Church. And uh, I can't think of a better passage to look at if you're visiting a church. This is one of those, this is one of those texts in scripture that uh, sort of blows the doors off of your understanding. And if you come in thinking this big, hopefully you leave thinking this big uh, because God's word is indeed amazing. Uh, but we want to say a special welcome to you, uh, a special welcome to the family and friends uh, of uh, the Jones family, of the Falks family, and of the McGinnis family. Uh, we're so glad that you're here and we'll be having our dedications uh, at the end of the service today so that our kids can uh, participate as well. Uh, in addition to welcoming you, I want to, um, yeah, just just say thank you, uh, thank you to to this church for your love for God's word. Uh, it's such a blessing to be able to be in a church that longs to hear the scriptures taught. And I'm so grateful that this is a place where I feel free to do that. And I know the other pastors feel the same. So I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 18 to 39 this morning as we finish our series. Uh, if you're just joining us, or maybe it's been so long you forgot, uh, we actually started this series before uh, I had my artificial knees installed. That's how long we've been in this series. Uh, we've been working through the book of Romans backwards. And uh, one of the weird sort of things about working through it backwards is it means we're stopping in the middle. So, uh, but this is very much a, a conclusion to a very significant line of thought that Paul has been developing here in the book of Romans. Uh, specifically in this section, chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, Paul has been describing what this transformed community looks like. And last week we saw that we're a community that is alive in the spirit of God, alive in the spirit of Christ. It's an amazing truth. Here we come to verses 18 to 39, and this I would consider to be Paul's sort of closing argument, if you will. Uh, there's been a lot of courtroom language going on, and this is Paul's final summation uh, in this section of his letter to the churches in Rome. Uh, I invite you now to bow your heads and pray with me again as we invite God's Spirit to help us this morning. Our Father, we come to you as people who uh, need your help, people who cannot comprehend the things above without the help of your Spirit who's been sent from above. And so, Lord, as we open the Scriptures today, we pray that you would teach us, that you would lead us and instruct us in the way of salvation. Lord, you have been good all the time, uh, and even though there's many things we do not understand, we believe that Jesus has the words of life for us. So we pray that he would instruct us today for his glory and our good. Amen. As we come to Romans chapter 18, verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 18 to 39, uh, we've been discussing this kind of already and not yet space that we're in. We, we are alive in the spirit of God, but, but we're not yet fully transformed. And I think if you talk to anyone who's been a Christian uh, for some time, they'll tell you that you live with some tension. <laughs> There's some things that are new and that are changing and that are in process of transforming. And there's also some things that are still dying. Maybe you felt some of the dying this week. 
Paul finished, uh, where, sorry, where we looked at last time, we finished with these words from the Apostle Paul in verse 17. And I've highlighted some key things there for us because they have to do with the argument that's going to come. He says, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Grand statements. Paul says that if you are in Christ, if the spirit of Christ dwells in you, you've been adopted into the family of God. And this means you're children of God, not in the sense that God gave life to your existence. Everybody could claim that. But you're children of God in the sense that you're a part of his household. In the sense that everything that belongs to him belongs to you. In the sense that the eternal, abundant peace that comes with the life of God is yours to claim. And then Paul makes this statement at the end. He says, if indeed, don't you hate those conditions? <laughs> but there's this thing when you're talking to a group of people whose, whose days have not yet completed, you have to speak with conditions. And so Paul writes to them and he says, if indeed we share in the sufferings of Christ in order that we may share in his glory. I don't know about you, but that statement leaves me sort of excited and sort of not excited. Kind of like if you've been told, guess what? Come along. Stay at our hotel. Enjoy this all-you-can-eat buffet. We just need to give you a little presentation beforehand. And those of you who've been to a timeshare presentation know what I'm talking about, right? So Paul has just made this statement, if we share in his sufferings, that we may share in his glory. And, and while that is true, I'm so glad he didn't finish at verse 17. Because I think Paul anticipates something in all of us when we read this. Well, is the suffering going to be worth the glory? Is it going to be worth it? Or is it going to be like that timeshare presentation where it says, you know what, I'm fine to make my own sandwich. I don't need the all-you-can-eat buffet. I'd rather just not have to listen to the presentation. The big question that Paul is answering and the big question that we're wrestling with today is how can we share in Christ's sufferings now so that we share in his glory later? And the emphasis is on the how. Like, honestly, how does this happen? Like, how do you actually do it? Most people, and I think you could say, that humanity wasn't made to suffer. We weren't designed for that. We recoil from suffering. We recoil from pain. We recoil from hurt. We recoil about things we grieve over. So how are we going to do this? How can we actually participate in the sufferings that come along with being a Christian. Now there's a suffering that's a part of life and then there's suffering for being a Christian. Anyone who takes breath on this earth will suffer. As one commentator glibly pointed out, this is what Wesley says in The Princess Bride when he says, life is pain. <laughs> 
Everyone who draws breath experiences some form of pain and challenge. But for the Christian, there is more suffering yet because Jesus said that those who bear his name will bear the treatment that he received in this world. And if you don't know how that ended, I invite you to look at the cross. The Christian is called to take up their cross and to die. So how are we going to do this? I forgot my glasses and I can't read that. I'm just going to be honest with you. I can't read that. We'll come back to it. <laughs> um, I think it was out of place anyway. What we have in front of us in verses 18 to 39 is the answer to this question. God says to us that we can wait with expectation through our sufferings for three reasons. Now, I just want to point out here that we are in the generation that maybe is, has been least equipped to wait. I can't think of a generation that has been more poorly shaped or formed to wait patiently. If you read the statistics on people's attention spans, they will tell you that, 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 that people can't focus on something for anything more than a few seconds. I have, I have been having people in my ear, maybe some of you in my ear, if this is you, I'm sorry, tell me, Jonathan, don't preach so long because people can't listen. And I say back to them, what other time in the week are they actually going to be forced to listen to somebody meditate on the Word of God? So I apologize. I'm not trying to bore you. I, I, here's my deal with you. If you're bored, you can go to sleep. And there is no judgment from me. That's my fault if you fall asleep. Go right ahead. Some of you need it. That's just fine. But our attention spans are so small. So if there's a generation that needs to learn how to wait, I, I think it's ours. And so these reasons for why we can wait are so important. The first reason comes in verses 18 to 25, where we find that the reason we can wait is we have hope in God's glory. Hope in God's glory. Verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul introduces here the language of comparison. And he says, if you set our sufferings on a scale next to the glory that's going to be revealed in us, Paul says our sufferings would ricochet so quickly off the scale due to the weight of glory, you couldn't even find them. The weight of the glory that is going to be revealed in us is so far exceeds the suffering that we experience right now it would be flung to the next stratosphere. Paul introduces the language of comparison, but it's really a non-comparison. Somebody said to me as I was preparing for this text, they said, well, Jonathan, I don't know if you can say that because people are really hurting. And I said, I agree. People are really hurting. Some of you have hurt like you've never hurt before. But Paul is not dismissing your sufferings. He is not saying they're imaginary. Look at what he says. He says, I consider that our present sufferings, literally our sufferings in the now, are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed in us. Paul said it's a fruitless exercise. He's like, it's not even worth your time. As F.F. F. Bruce would say about this, 
Paul doesn't say your glory will replace your suffering. He says the glory grows out of the suffering. And in fact, he doubles down. Verse 19, he says, it's not just you that's suffering. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That phrase, eager expectation, it means to wait with your head up. Now, plenty of you have learned to wait like this, <laughs> right? We can all wait like this, or some of you wait like this. That's a bit easier to wait. It's hard to wait with your head up, isn't it? I was thinking about this. The last time I had to wait with my head up was when I had family coming in to Australia, and I was standing there with a great throng of humanity at Sydney International Airport, and I had to wait with my head up. You know why? Because I was looking to recognize the one that I love. I knew they were coming. I've been tracking the flight. I knew they were going to land. And so I stood there and I waited. And I waited. And I waited. And they came. Paul says, the creation, that is all the created order, all the cosmos, all the matter in the universe waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. So follow Paul in his line of thought here. God is revealing his glory in humanity. And he says that the rest of creation is, is waiting until the full number of the family of God can be revealed or can be unveiled. Until God finally opens the doors of his house and says, these are my children. He says that about you and I, about humanity. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Mariah, I'm going to ask you to follow me in the scriptures on the slides if you don't mind. Thank you. Paul says that everything we see in this world has been laid down with a curse. And so that all matter is, is strained, is laden, is enslaved, is bound up with futility. There are certain laws in thermodynamics that describe the dissipation of the universe. The, 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 the slow frittering away of matter. That's why a lot of scientists believe the Big Bang Theory. It's as if everything we see breaks down. Paul says the creation didn't sign up for that. Now, this is a great explanation for what we see in the world, isn't it? And I would say this is where the climate change people get it right. I just don't think they know how right they are. <laughs> a lot of people are upset in the world today because they see what mankind, humankind has done to the environment. And they look at mankind, they say, you've done this. You know what? God says that too. He says, you, you've done this. 
But it doesn't, it's not simply talking about our recycling habits, pollution, all, all that sort of thing. He's talking about way back after God made everything and called it good. And, he's, and he made man and woman and he called them very good. And he put them over the creation. And he said, you reflect my image. You be fruitful and multiply and you rule over this perfect creation. And what happened? Men and women didn't listen to God. And they involved the creation in their rebellion. They rebelled with the creation. And so Paul says now everything is subject to futility. One commentator said, this is, this is the, <laughs> you want a summary of Ecclesiastes, read Romans 8.20. Ecclesiastes, that great wisdom literature, which says meaningless, meaningless, everything under the sun is meaningless. Yeah. That's what we've done with it. But notice God did this in hope. God is the one who subjected creation to this. Humanity rebelled, but God said, creation, even though my image bearers have done the wrong thing, you're going to have to park it for a while. You're going to have to wait. I'm going to subject you to the curse. You need to wait because I will redeem you. I will transform you. I will restore everything. I will restore all matter. I will restore the cosmos, God says. But you're going to have to wait because i got to redeem some people first. Creation. You're going to have to feel this, this, this curse, this divine curse from the one who made you. You will have to labor under that for now. So I can go save some people. So I can restore my image in men and women. And when the sons and daughters of God are revealed, then you're going to have your day. Verse 22, Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Paul doesn't look at nature and say, this is perfect harmony. He sees a nature that has been crippled, and he sees it groaning, and he sees it crying, and he sees it, he sees it agonizing as if in the pains of childbirth. It's a fitting metaphor. It's a fitting description. I will never know the pain of childbirth. But some of you know that. I've been told it's quite the pain. <laughs> but it's fitting because after the pain is new life. But even these processes in our world are imperfect. Even these processes of reproducing don't automatically bear the joy but when the new creation comes, when God restores everything, there will be no imperfection. There will be no dissipation. There will be no corruption, no, no, no decay, no, no decomposition. No cancer. No stillbirths. No crying, no tears. <laughs> so Paul says, you can endure 
the suffering because you know this is coming. Verse 22, verse 23, not only so, he says, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Paul moves from creation universal to our created physical existence, these bodies that we live in, which he calls in another letter an old tent that's wearing out. Paul says, in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? Now, sometimes as Christians, we get really excited when we see the kingdom of heaven breaking in. And we get these glimpses of what the new creation is going to be like. They come in the forms of miraculous healings. It comes in the the forms of, of all sorts of gifts from the Spirit of God. But note what Paul says here. He says, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. It's going to get even better. Verse 25, if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. You know, sometimes when I'm standing there waiting for my, for my family to get off the plane, I, I would see somebody walk by and I'd say, oh, that, I think that's my mom. It kind of looks like her. Ah, but it's not her yet. And then another person, I I think, is that her? And I get these reminders that that, that they're almost here. I get these reminders that they're coming. but, But I'll tell you what, I have one mom. I got one mom. And when she gets off the plane and I give her an embrace, that's different isn't it? You see, there's, there's going to be little glimpses, little, little real, tangible reminders of the kingdom of heaven breaking in right now. But you need to recognize that there's a lot of groaning going on. Did you know that Christians and God's people for centuries have a category of worship for groaning? Did you know that you can worship by groaning? It's called lament. If your worship doesn't include lament, you're missing something. And I would suggest you and I, when we fail to lament, when we forget to lament, we're missing the fact that God grieves over the state of things right now. And so we got to hold this tension, don't we? Some people, all they want to do is lament. And they just lament, 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 lament. And they can lament so much that, that you're like, do you realize where we're going? Do you, do, do, do you realize the consummation that's coming? You, you do know that we have a glorious future, right? You need to say that. And sometimes we fall into the other side and, and when we forget to lament and we're just, here it is, it's so great. And then you come across somebody who's grieving and you have no idea what to say or what to do. And a lot of people don't feel welcome in the church because they feel like they have to be happy all the time. You can groan. Creation's groaning. Spirit's groaning too. So the next reason we have to wait patiently with expectation through our suffering is because we have help in God's spirit. 
Verse 26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. There are times when we don't know what to do, what to say. We, we, we can't even talk to our Father in heaven. But the Spirit of God in us knows exactly what we need. And He intercedes in wordless groans to tell us, to tell the Father, excuse me, to convey to the Father what we need. It's why Jesus called the Holy Spirit the Comforter and the Advocate. Are you beginning to see why the church is meant to be a different sort of place? You see, out in the world, you know what? There is no such thing as hope for the future. It's just wishful thinking. No one can predict tomorrow. No one can say what's going to happen. You might have everything laid up all in order, and the next thing you know, you get a diagnosis. The next thing you know, someone cuts you off, and they get the thing that you were wanting to get. All the basket you had all your eggs in goes, goes toppling off the table in the world. But in the church, there's a certain hope. In the world, you're told you got you and nobody else. No one's going to help you. You got to do it. And if you don't do it, it's not going to get done. That's what we hear in the world. But no, that's not how God sees it. He says, you need help. And I'm going to give you my spirit. There's something freeing about saying we need help, isn't there? Something freeing about saying, I can't do it. Even just to say, I don't know how to pray, God. Help me. I don't know exactly what this is like. But I can tell you there have been times I've been so empty. So worn out. Couldn't do anything but get on my knees. And I've gone to open my mouth to pray, and there's nothing. If that's been you, you're not a bad Christian. You're just a Christian. You see, the pagans think relating to God is all about saying the right formula. You got to say the right words in the right order. You got to, you know, God is some, is some supernatural power that you, ha you, the human, have to somehow control. That's paganism. But Christianity says God loves you and he puts his spirit in you. And yes, you will be weak. Yes, you may get broken. Yes, you will suffer. But you know what? That's okay. God hasn't turned his back on you. And he will give freely of himself, of his spirit, to live in you and to intercede, to bring to God the things he knows that you need. And with this, it makes sense why Paul can say in verses 28 to 29 and 30, he can give this great, this great statement encompassing all of salvation. Verse 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
that he might be the firstborn of, of among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. You see, the picture here is that the Spirit of God is in the Christian working out all of the saving that God's already decided is going to happen and all the saving that he already sees is going to be done from way when it started before you even existed in matter and you were only a thought in the mind of your Creator all the way to the future in your embodied, glorified existence in the kingdom of heaven when, as one author said, the existence on earth is going to feel like a night in a bad hotel tell, but you're going to forget about it because you are so wrapped and captivated with the glory of your Savior in the, in the existence that everything that is made was designed to be. And you will reflect the glory of your God. Why is life so hard? Because the enemy of God hates people who reflect God. And he will do anything to destroy those who are made in God's image. But do you know what? He doesn't win. He doesn't win. And here Paul can say, we know that the salvation that God initiated is the salvation that God will carry to completion. Hallelujah, Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. Notice these things. And Christ is the proof. He's the firstborn. He's the preeminent of it all. And then we come to the final reason. We can wait with expectation through our suffering, not just because we have hope in God's glory, not just because we have help in God's spirit, but because we're held in God's love. <laughs> Amen and amen and amen. Verse 31, Paul says, what shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give also along with him graciously give us all things? He gave you Jesus. Is he going to hold anything back? You know, our problem is we think we need things that we don't need. My son had a birthday this week. I thought I needed more cake. <laughs> I didn't need it. We needed to celebrate and we did. All right, but sometimes we get confused because, you know what, that second piece of cake looks so good. And you know what, I've had, I've already tasted some of the cake, and I just want more. And I look at it and I think, oh, God gave me a mouth. It's there. You know, often we get, we get our wants and our needs confused. The promise is not that we have everything we ever, not everything we think we want, it's that we have everything we need and even more than what you need. If he didn't spare his own son, won't he give us everything along with Jesus? 
And then in verse 33, we come to a courtroom scene. And in this courtroom scene, Paul imagines us there as the, the books are opened and everyone's reading out what's being done. And he imagines somebody standing up and saying, hey, what about this person? They don't deserve to be there. And he asks the question, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's as if you're in the courtroom and, and God has already exonerated you and Paul says, now who wants to prosecute? Where's the prosecutor? Well, you've already been declared righteous. You've already been declared holy. You've already been given the keys to the house. You, your name's already in his will, right? You're already signed up to get the inheritance. And, and God's the judge. He's the one who's presiding over all this. And he did that for you. Who's going to dare walk in and sit at the prosecution table? And even if they were, even if they were, who's going to condemn you? Who is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So next to the judge is Jesus. So if somebody even dares, you know, your auntie or your uncle who's just really critical, you know, that person in your life, you can never get it right. Even if they somehow found their way into the courtroom and brought their dossier full of things that you did wrong and all the things that you can't measure up to, and they somehow managed to get the microphone switched on and say, well, uh, here I am, I'd like to make a case. Jesus is standing next to the judge. Sorry, right hand. He's at the next, he's at the next to the judge. And so if there was something that by any means could stick he just leans over to the judge and says, yeah, I paid for that. I, I covered that one too. All of our sin, all oh, people, I hope you see the beauty and the glory of this. Well, what about the hardships? He moves out of the courtroom, verse 35. Who shall, who shall, excuse me, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In other words, Paul says, is something that could physically happen to you going to stop this spiritual transformation that is so great that one day it will actually encompass your physical transformation as well? Is there a meal you have to miss or a name that you would get called or a limb that you might lose, even a life, an existence here in this life that you might lose that is actually going to stand in the way of this glorious future? No. And he quotes the prophet, he says, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Church, you need to know the difference between what the world considers you to be and what God considers you to be. Don't listen to what the world says you are. 
they'll tell you you're lame and you're stupid and, and you're just using all this for a crutch and, you know, you're just a killjoy and you don't really, you know, care about... You're like a lamb who's just sitting at the chopping block and they look at you like, why do you keep banging your head against this wall of religion? And you try to say to them, no, don't you get it? That's not what I'm doing at all. I'm standing with the sun. I'm in line with the Savior. The Lamb of God. That's the one I'm with. And you know what? If they, if they slaughtered him, and that means I, I, I get slaughtered in this life, fine, because in the last day, at the end of it all, I am with the Lamb and he is risen. And he's reigning. Church, know the difference between what the world considers you and what they say about you and what God says about you. That's why Paul can say in verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. That, that, probably not the best translation. We are over conquerors. We're like uber victorious. Next time you see the Nike swoosh logo, right? The, the, the word Nike has roots in the Greek word for victory or to conquer. That's why, they, that's why they picked it. I know you guys call it Nike. Sorry. It's not, it's not what you, how you call it. Nike, right? Nike, the, 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 I see you're all saying, is that really right? Is he right? Do we just call the wrong thing? Sorry. American company, I know how they call it, right? So, so anytime you see the swoosh logo, right? Anytime you see that and you see Nike and, and, they want you to think victorious. That's why their slogan is just do it, right? Paul is saying here in a bit of a way, he's saying, we're like, we've like over Nike'd. <laughs> like, like we, we haven't just Nike'd, we've like, we've like over Nike'd. We've, we're, we're uber victorious. We've like won at the winning, right? Like of all the winning that can be done, we, we won that. Why? Because he just did it. Nike wants you to think you do it. The Christian says he did it. For I am convinced neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are held by the love of God. So even when you forget how certain your hope is, even when you forget and don't understand the Spirit's work in your life, remember, you're held by the love of God in Christ Jesus. My favorite psalm, Psalm, I think it's, uh, now I'm going to misquote it. I think it's Psalm 132. It says, like a weaned child with its mother, so is my soul within me. The weaned child doesn't cry because he's being held. He doesn't need to clamor. He knows the love is there. And he will get, or she will get, their food at the proper time.
I want to finish, uh, if you have trouble remembering, just remember hope, help, and held. Hope, help, and held. Three reasons why we can wait with eager expectation. I want to finish with this quote from Michael Bird. It's a long one, forgive me. But I think he encapsulates what Christians we mean by hope. He says this, hope is not optimism. Rather, hope is the audacity of faith under adversity. Hope is the cheering in triumph for what others deem a lost cause. Hope expiates the misery of life. Hope is currency in the land of melancholy. Hope is dancing when the music has long ceased. Hope is bread for the soul that is starved. Hope is the voice that whispers to us all, whispers to us that all things are possible. Hope is the grace to face our fears, knowing that there is someone greater than the sum of all fears. Hope holds out a light rather than curses the dark. Hope is the physician of a terrified soul. Hope is the hero of the weak. Hope is defiance in the face of the tyrant. Oh, church, sin, death, and the devil have been a tyrant in your life for way too long. Way too long. You are being made into the image of Christ. Your redemption is secure. You are being glorified. And the moment his glory is fully revealed in us, that will trigger the restoration of all things. The spirit of God is with you to help you. And there is nothing that will separate you from God's love. We love him because he first loved us. As the band comes onto the stage, I want you to take a moment to hear what the Spirit is saying when I say to you, what's next? What's next for you? If this is true, how would you answer Paul's question? What shall we say in response to these things? What, what, where do we go from here? That's what Paul wants to know. If the Spirit's asking you that question, what's your answer? What's next? Would you stand as we sing?